And this morning, we're going to continue on with these paradoxes, these things that look like they're an either-or, but they're both and. We're going to talk about what strength is and what weakness is. And to get us going, i gotta, I got to say this. I think every, uh, at least every young boy, we grew up with a picture in pop culture about who is really strong, like a picture of strength. And for me, I'm a child of the 90s. I don't know if we have any other children of the 90s here. But for me growing up, one picture of strength was definitely the 1990s Indiana Pacers. Any Pacer fans remember like the end of the 1990s, 2000s? It was amazing. And these two guys here were the pictures of strength for me growing up. That's the Davis brothers, Dale Davis and Antonio Davis. Am I the only one that like remembers these guys? I mean, they're amazing. The Davis brothers. Now, they weren't actually brothers, and I'm not going to admit how old I was when I figured that out. They weren't actually brothers, but they both played power forward and center on the Pacers, Dale Davis uh, there on the right, and Antonio Davis on the left. And these guys were big, bad dudes, right? I mean, they were guys that they were strong. They would get rebounds all the time. I mean, they were tough, and nobody wanted to play them. Even in the latest Michael Jordan documentary, he talked about how tough these guys were to play. And they would instigate fights. They were physical players. But as a young boy looking at these guys, I'm like, man, those guys are really, really strong. But what's interesting about the Davis brothers, they were very strong. They were a picture of strength, but they also had weakness in their game as well. I mean, neither of them averaged over 10 points a game throughout their career. Uh, They were both terrible free throw shooters. And basically the only time they scored was if they got a rebound and threw in a dunk right afterwards. They couldn't shoot like eight feet from the basket. So even though they were a picture of strength to me, they also had some weakness in them as well. Which leads me to another player from this era of the Pacers. You might remember this guy. This is our friend Reggie Miller. You give it up for Reggie Miller. Do you remember this guy's best? Amazing. And he was a different kind of strength because on the surface, he looked like he was pretty weak. I mean, he was like 200 pounds, sopping wet, even though he was six, seven. I mean, he wasn't a physical player who threw down a lot of dunks or ever posted up, but he was a deadly shooter. He loved having the ball in his hands when the game was on the line. He was a different kind of superstar because he averaged well over 20 points a game for most of his career, but he only shot 12 times a game on average throughout his career, which is unheard of today. I mean, Kobe shot like 25 to 30 times a game, right? But he only shot 12 times a game. He was a team-first kind of superstar. Not only was he like a team-first superstar with how little he shot the ball, but he actually was so strong because he stayed with one team throughout his entire career, the team that drafted him. And not only that, but he also wasn't afraid to stick up and stand up for his teammates. It didn't matter who he was playing. I love this picture of him and the GOAT, Michael Jordan. Look at the, like, the fury in Michael Jordan's eyes. That's terrifying, but... Reggie was not afraid of him at all. Even though he wasn't very strong, he would stand up to the best players in the league. Reggie was a symbol of strength to me growing up, even though he had weakness in his personality as well. And, you know, as we get thinking about this idea, this dualistic thinking of you're either strong or if you're weak, I think we even see it in our heroes growing up, right? That you can be strong and weak at the same time in this different kind of strength. And I actually will go as far to say this, is the human race, I think we are psychologically anthropological, yeah, I'm not even going to go there, but we're just like built and wired by our creator to have strength and weakness as part of who we are. You ever think about this, that we, I think we are like the strongest, uh, the, the strongest animal, the strongest mammal, the strongest beings on the planet. We have so much strength to us. And we get this from the very beginning of the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, in the creation poem, I say poem because you can just sort of feel the cadence in this passage we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28. This is so foundational to who we are, guys. 
This is in the very beginning of the Bible. So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. You and I were created with the thumbprint of the Father on our lives. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. I don't have to explain what that means there. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These are some commands that were given to us at the very beginning of the scriptures, right? And I love that phrase, fill the earth. It doesn't mean just stay in one place, but actually humans go everywhere. Do you know we're the only species on the planet that can live in any ecosystem? It doesn't matter. Most animals, most mammals live in one place. But we can live anywhere. We can live in Indiana. We can live in Florida, the Bahamas. Some people are crazy enough to live in like Antarctica or in like Chernobyl, Russia or Muncie, Indiana. I mean, I don't know what it is, but we can live anywhere. I'm not, not picking on Muncie too bad. I have a timeshare there. Just kidding. I don't have that. Uh, but anyway, we can live anywhere for sure. Not only that, but we're called to subdue the earth, to subdue the animals around us, to be in control. This is what farmers do, to subdue the land, to control the land, or people keeping our yards uh, well ma uh, manicured as well. And then we're also told to rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, we are in charge of the animal kingdom. We're to rule over them, and we actually have animals. We're so strong that we have animals as pets, right? And even though we love our pets, we're, we should be the boss of our pets, right? I mean, we think differently about them. We live to take care of them, and they don't really take care of us. They don't, we have a, like a rough day. They sit down on the couch next to us and ask us, hey, how was the markets today? How was your 401k? Or hey, was your boss still doing that thing? And they don't ask us those questions, even though we care about our animals because we are over them. We are strong above any other creature in the created order. And that's so true. We are the strongest beings on planet Earth, but at the same time, we're the most vulnerable. We're the weakest beings in the entire created order as well. You ever think about this? I mean, you think about like lambs, baby lambs. Uh, their mothers give birth to them, and then for two weeks, uh, they are given milk, and then they're weaned off of their mother's milk for two weeks. And then a lamb is just a sheep. <laughs> and they go on, and they live their life. They can do their whole life without their parents. The human race is a little different than that, right? Now, if you've got little kids, little babies, you've got toddlers, you know that they are helpless right now. I mean, if we just keep adding on to the ages of how long our kids are helpless, I think it's at like 35 now. We've got people still living in our basements probably. But we are so helpless. And even though we're so strong, we're also so vulnerable. We're also so vulnerable because we're the only creatures that actually think about our death. We think about that at the end of our life. There's going to be something else, or we're not going to live forever. And here's the crazy thought. In 100 years, you guys, all new people. <laughs> None of us are probably going to be here in 100 years. We have an end date to our life, and we think about it, and we have these existential crises, and we try to have self-actualization to think about who we are and where we're going and what we're doing with our one and only life. And we're the only creatures that do that. But it's sort of a vulnerability because it's kind of scary sometimes as well. We're so strong, but at the same time, we're so weak. And I believe that God actually created us that way, to give us a signpost, to give us a symbol that we can't do it on our own, and that there's a new kind of strength, a different kind of strength that he is inviting us into. And I want to encourage us this morning to take a little journey with me as we go through some of the New Testament, to look and see that strength and weakness is not an either-or. It's a both and, and I believe there's a new branding of what strength is that we're invited 
into for us to live. It's a different kind of strength. It's a strength that's, you know, say, cruciformed, or it's formed by the cross of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And, and God's inviting us to live in a new kind of strength. So let's go on a little bit of a journey together to see this land of both and that we can navigate together when it comes to us living out strength and weakness at the same time. And to start us off, I want to put this thought in front of you. That true strength is not shoving down or stuffing down your emotions and never showing your emotions. That's not what true strength looks like, even though we oftentimes think don't show any emotions and that's how we will look strong. I mean, for example, um, I don't know if you guys are like this, but um, I'm just putting my cards on the table. I'm a crier when it comes to movies and when it comes to TV. Like, I, I can make a mess of myself watching a movie or a TV show that I really, really care about. I mean, for example, uh, I really embarrassed my wife and some friends that we were with when we saw Avengers Endgame uh, this, last, uh, this last year. I mean, we saw it, and I was just like a puddle in the corner. I'm not going to give too big of a spoiler alert about what happens, but I was like emotionally a wreck at the end of that movie. I mean, it was like the culmination of 20 movies, so I'll give myself a little slack, but I cry at movies. I saw the Mr. Rogers movie that came out, and I was like crying like eight minutes into the Mr. Rogers movie. Don't know what that says about me. I'm just being real with you. I, I remember the, <laughs> there was like a time in high school I saw the movie Marley and me. Anybody remember Marley and me? I'm a dog guy. I love dogs. I remember seeing Marley and me. And at the end of the movie, I'm not going to give it away, but it's kind of sad at the end of the movie. I remember being such a mess that I wanted everybody else to leave the theater so nobody saw like me crying as badly as I did, right? I mean, this is just who I am. I get moved that way. I embarrass my wife all the time because of the way that I cry at movies and TV shows that I care about. But so often, we think that that's a sign of weakness, that don't let them see you cry. Don't let them see you have any vulnerability because that'll show weakness and vulnerability and you need to act like you're strong. Can I just say that men specifically, we have issues with this. <laughs> For me and my personality, I've come to find that uh, vulnerability is kind of my kryptonite and I have to work hard to put all my cards on the table in front of me and to be real about what I am feeling because I tend to think that it's a weakness. In 2014, there was this, just, I'll call it a bad movie. It was a remake of the Hercules story uh, starring Dwayne Rock Johnson. And there's this powerful moment in the movie because in this version of Hercules, um, Hercules is not a god or a demigod. He's just someone who's really strong and a great warrior. But they perpetuate, they continue this myth that he is a god. So he needs to be really, really tough and people need to see him and view him as a god to strike fear into their enemies' hearts. And at one point in the movie, uh, the, the Rock playing Hercules, he gets cut on his arm by a sword. And then one of his, uh, his crew members, people on his side of the army, they cover his arm up immediately with a cloak. And he whispers into Hercules' ears, never let them see you bleed. Never let them see you bleed. Because if they see him bleed, then they're not going to believe that he is truly invincible at all. And my friends, I think that so often we live with that mentality as well. Never let people see us bleed. Never let people see you sweat because that shows vulnerability. It shows that our emotions are on the surface and we're an emotional person. But my friends, true strength is not shoving down, stuffing down your emotions. It's something different altogether. To show us this, I want to take us to this uh, passage in the Gospel of John, John 11, actually. And to set up the passage before we dive into it, Jesus had just gotten word that one of his dear friends, Lazarus, was deathly ill. And he wasn't going to make it for very much longer. And so Jesus takes a little journey to come see Lazarus. And everybody thinks that he's coming to heal Lazarus so he doesn't die. But Jesus arrives late. 
And when Jesus arrives late, he has this interaction with Lazarus's sister, Mary. And we'll pick up here in John chapter 11. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him as Jesus was approaching, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and in trouble and troubled, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I think sometimes we view Jesus as kind of this hippie guy who's like above it all, serene, like a monk walking around the earth. But we're told at the end of this passage, when he had found that his friend Lazarus had died and he saw the weeping and the mourning of the family around him, he was deeply moved in spirit and in trouble. And there's this uh, theologian, B.B. Warfield, who was the uh, professor of theology at Princeton University. And he said that the, our translations do a weak job on this last phrase in this verse. I mean, our translation says deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Go back there. It's a deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But uh, what really should happen here is that it shows that Jesus was feeling rage. Jesus was angry at this reality. He was enraged. This is the picture that we get of Jesus in this verse. Now, what is Jesus enraged about? What is Jesus so angry about? I mean, that's unlike Jesus to be angry and to show his emotions in that way, right? I mean, most commentators say that he's not mad at Lazarus. He's not mad at Lazarus' family for mourning. Jesus is enraged at, like, death, at the reality of death. And Jesus sees what it's doing to this family, and he is so angry at what death can steal, what death can take away from his friends, his family, his children. So Jesus is enraged. Let me ask you this. We, we felt that before, right? Maybe you've had a parent, a grandparent who had passed along. Maybe you had somebody in your life that passed way too early. And you're feeling deeply moved in your spirit. And you're just underneath the surface. You're angry that death has this reality in our world. Jesus felt that same thing. He was enraged at death. He let his emotions show in this way. He didn't shove them down. He left them to the surface. We continue on, and we see another emotion that Jesus felt in this passage in the very next verse. Jesus asked this, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And we see this, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's so powerful. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus put all of his cards on the table, no reservations about how he was feeling. He cried, and that verb, wept, is not just a little bit of tears coming down his cheeks. It's like a mourning, crying, screaming out in agony and of pain and emotional depth of hurt and grief. Jesus wept. He wasn't afraid to show his emotions. He didn't shove them down. And what Jesus did next in the story, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus went and he rose Lazarus from the dead and made this huge scene, interrupted a funeral by bringing Lazarus back to life, which was so powerful. But Jesus, he let those emotions show, and then God used those emotions to bring healing to this family. So powerful. In other places, we see that Jesus showed his emotions as well. In Matthew 20, we're uh, told that Jesus comes across a couple blind men. And in this moment, the blind men ask Jesus to heal them, and they say they want to have sight again. And then we're told in Matthew 20 that Jesus was deeply moved with compassion. Deeply moved with compassion. And that verb, moved with compassion, if we look at the original language, it actually means this, which is kind of weird and crazy. It means moved within his bowels. 
Yeah, I'll let you do all the interpretation that could possibly happen there. But we're told Jesus was deeply moved within him, in his bowels, in his guts, in a way, to do something about these two blind men. And he heals these two blind men. And another time, near the end of Jesus' life, we're shown that Jesus was angry at injustice. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and to the temple, and he sees a bunch of money changers turning his house of prayer, the temple, this holy place, into the marketplace. And what does Jesus do? He starts turning over tables. One of the gospels said he makes a whip of cords, and he starts driving them all out, saying, this is not what my house is all about. And underneath the surface in that passage, we see the heart and the emotions of Jesus on the, on the front screen of his life, saying that when the most vulnerable are taken advantage of, when people are taken advantage of, that is injustice, and Jesus has nothing to do with that. He wants to have nothing to do with injustice. He wants to heal and restore brokenness in our world, in our lives, personally, in the systems and the structures in our world as well. And Jesus got angry at injustice. You, you see, here's the reality about what true strength is that Jesus shows us, and we'll put this up on the screen. That true strength is not about shoving down, stuffing down our emotions. True strength is surrendering your emotions to God's kingdom and God's mission. It's allowing them to bubble up to the surface and surrendering them, giving them to God so that he can redirect them into the world. It's not a source of weakness. This is a new rebranding, a repackaging of what true strength is. It's saying, this is how I feel, God. God, what can you do with it to bring good into my family, into my workplace, into this world that you love? It's about surrendering, giving those emotions to him for his purposes. Let me just say this for just a few minutes before we move on. The men in the room, men, we, we, men in the room and online, we are sold a bill of goods, a, a book of lies when it comes to our emotions. To where, like, we're told that to show any kind of vulnerability, to show any kind of weakness, oh, that um, is no way to be strong in our world at all. And we'll get left behind, we'll get made fun of, we'll never move ahead if we show any sign of vulnerability and weakness. And my friends, that is not true at all that is not true at all jesus i mean jesus shows us a different way i mean can you imagine if this facade of men not being strong by showing vulnerability and weakness sometimes if that would drop can you imagine how our world would be different i mean we, we know we all know we have different opinions about how to fix it and how to deal with it but we know gun violence is an issue in our country right and we know that 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a guy, a man with a gun who has mental issues going on. Can you imagine the lives that could be saved if we would walk into a different direction where men say, I'm tough enough to show my vulnerability, to talk to a professional, to, to take some medication if it's prescribed to me so that I can be more balanced so I don't walk into an office space or into a room shooting. I mean, it could save lives, you guys. Because this is what true strength is. It's not about shoving down our emotions. It's about surrendering our emotions to God and allowing them to be used for his glory. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful invitation that we have. Now, the next reality of true strength, this rebranding of strength and weakness together, is this. And we'll put this up on the screens. True strength is emptying ourselves of power for the sake of of others. True strength is actually taking our power and emptying it for the sake 
of other people. Now, this flies right in the face of the American dream, the American way of thinking for sure, because we think that the goal is to get more power, to gain more influence, to have more money, to uh, go up and to the right with all of our authority in every way and hoard it for ourselves. We think this is the goal of our lives. But we're shown in the way of Jesus and in the person of Jesus that this, there's a better way to do it, and that's actually weakness when you think about it. I mean, there's this passage I want to spend some time in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, which is part of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to this early group of Jesus followers in this place called Philippi. And uh, we find that it, as he was writing these words, that they were some of the most radical, progressive words that the human race had ever heard about the way of Jesus and the way that humans are supposed to live. Because in the time that these words were written, the world looked a lot like our world today, where it was all about might equals right. And if we have more power, it's our duty to you know, hoard more power and to control and to never give it away. And humility was actually not just a dirty word, it was a silly word. And humility and humbleness, it was not even a reality in the ancient world. But into the world that looks kind of like ours, but it was all about might equals right, the Apostle Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 2, and I think we see the way forward to true strength. Paul says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, mirror the way and the attitude of Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he continues on. He says this, For this reason also... God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is one of the first poems that the early church would recite or songs that the early church would sing, and this was radical, radical thinking. Because on the whole, this passage is teaching us, it's challenging us, it's inviting us to see greatness, not as an ascent to greatness, but as a descent into greatness. That's what it's all about. You see, Jesus, in the beginning of this passage, he says he emptied himself, he humbled himself. Even though he had all the divine privileges, he emptied himself, he gave it away for the sake of others, for the sake of you and me. And not only that, we see that this descent was into greatness because, because Jesus did this. This is why at the name of, you know, at his name, everybody would bow and he would be considered and known as the Lord of all. Jesus shows us that there's a descent into greatness. It's not an ascent into greatness, but it's a descent into greatness. Andy Crouch, who is a journalist, a great Christian thought leader, he wrote a book called Strength and Weakness that I read a bunch of this last week and it really shaped a ton of my thinking on this topic. Now, you guys should check it out sometime. It's really, really powerful stuff. But Andy Crouch says this. He says, true happy endings are won only at the greatest cost. No king is truly a king without a cross. It's a good rhyme, actually, too. True happy endings are won only at the greatest cost. There's no king, no king is truly a king without a cross. 
In other words, our heroes, the people we look up to, they don't just rise into greatness. They give themselves away, and there's suffering, and there's a relinquishing of their power for others that's in their storyline. We know this, right? This is emotionally satisfying to us because when we're moved by characters and movies, TV, and literature, it's always because they are self-sacrificing. They give of themselves for their friends and for the sake of other people. This is why some of us love Harry Potter, right? Because at the end, he was willing to give it all away. This is why some of us cry at Avengers movies. This is why we have these emotional reactions to heroes in our life is because we know this to be true. It's like there's something inside of us that when we see someone who's self-sacrificing for the sake of others, it moves us deeply. And I think that's a signpost given to us from our creator. Because this is what Jesus did in his descent into greatness. I took to Facebook this last week just trying to get some different perspectives on this. And I asked the question, um, who are some strong female leaders, whether that be in pop culture and public leadership, that people look up to? And I was blown away by the responses. There were about 120 uh, responses on this Facebook post. And only a couple people got mad, which is a huge win in this <laughs> climate that we live in. Uh, but it was kind of amazing because there was just this common thread through this picture of all these women that we look up to, and it was all of them. They rose to the top of something, but they didn't hoard their power, their influence over people. They gave it away to empower other people. People talked about Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor or Michelle Obama, the notorious RBG. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg there. There's um, another Supreme Court Justice. Uh, Barbara Bush, uh, Melinda Gates. I mean, all these women that were so powerful in the eyes of the world, but what are they doing with their power? They're giving it away to empower, to lift up other people in this act of self-giving. Because they understand that there's a descent into greatness, not an ascent into greatness. Andy Stanley, who's one of my favorite pastors, writers, a leader, speaks in my life all the time. He says this about kindness, and I think this is very appropriate for our discussion today. He says this. This is what kindness is. Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Let me say that again. This is so good. Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of your weakness. Man, that is powerful. I think a lot of times we get kindness and niceness mixed up. I mean, we, in the Midwest, we do a great job of niceness, right? Like, you know, I just call it Midwest nice. Oh, bless their heart. Or, oh, that's just so nice. You know, she's, I don't know what to say about her. She's nice. You know, I don't know why I'm giving us a southern accent all of a sudden. But we do a great job of Midwest niceness. And I think sometimes we conflate niceness with kindness. Oh, man, let's not do that. Kindness is an action word. It is a powerful word because this is what kindness does. It gives someone our strength instead of putting them down and reminding them of their weakness. Friends, I think this is what true strength looks like. Let me ask you this. Are you tough enough to be kind? Are you tough enough to show kindness to people that see the world differently than you, that have been down on their luck, that are hurting? Are you tough enough to loan them your strength instead of pushing them down, kicking them down, reminding them of their weakness? Oh, man, what? I would dream and love for Bridgeway to be a community of people in Indiana where we're known not for our niceness but for our kindness. How great would that be? Those people are so kind. And I just want to remind us, this is what true strength looks like. The rebranding of strength and weakness together that we see in Jesus. True strength is, we'll put this on the screen, is emptying ourselves of power for the sake of others. It's taking our power and loaning it to somebody else so that they can be empowered. 
And the last reality of what strength and weakness, it's not a either or, it's a both and. The last thing I want us to see is this, that true strength is recognizing our need for help. True strength is saying, I just can't on my own. And this flies in the face of so much that we have in our personality as Americans, isn't it? I mean, there's this incredible idea. Alexis David Tocqueville, who uh, was a French guy who came in and he uh, documented a lot about the American experience and the American culture in the 18th century, the beginning of our nation. He wrote a ton about America and he was real snooty about it, but he was right a lot of the time too, French. Uh, but he would talk about America and he talked about how American people have this rugged individualism where they think they can do it on their own and the goal of their life is to just do it on their own. And we think that asking for help, it's the ultimate sign of weakness. And ultimately, we think that the goal of our life should be to never have to ask for help. That's what true freedom and authority looks like, never have to ask for help. And I just want to encourage you to see this differently, you guys, that true strength is actually recognizing our helplessness and our need for help. To show us this, I want to take us to another letter that Paul wrote to the early church in this town called Corinth. And uh, at this time, right before this passage we're going to look at, Paul was actually struggling with this physical ailment. And we don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that was debilitating to him. So there are a lot of scholars that think he's, he was losing his eyesight, and it was hard for him to do his work because he was losing his eyesight. A lot of scholars believe that he had arthritis in his writing hand, so that's why he had other people pin his letters for him. But we don't know exactly what it was, but we know that Paul hated it, and he wanted it gone. It was just this debilitating ailment that he had. And we're told here in 2 Corinthians 12 how he interacted with God around this ailment. We'll pick up here in uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says this, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. I just want to stop there for a second. You see the realness in Paul in his writing here? He begged the Lord to take it away. Oh, I know there have been seasons in my life where I've gotten real with God, and I have begged him to take something away. I begged God to change something. (laughs) And maybe it wasn't the timing that I wanted. Maybe it wasn't the answer that I wanted back from God. But this is where I got real with God. God, and I just want you to see here, here's Paul, this, this founder of the Christian movement, the early church, and he's not an idealist, you know, he's pie in the sky thinking towards God. He got real with God. He begged God to take this ailment away. And he said, each time he said, God said back to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And some of you might be saying, like, that sounds crazy, <laughs> And then others of you, I imagine, you're, you've lived life and you've walked with God long enough where you're like, yeah, that sounds crazy, but that's exactly how it went. That my, His grace, it filled me. And even though he didn't take away this ailment, he was with me in a unique and powerful way that I'd never experienced him like on the other side. And his power showed off and it shone bright in my weakness. He continues on and he says this at the end of this passage in verses 9 and 10. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. I'm going to brag about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me and in me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. And here's the kicker, his summation here. He goes goes like this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He says that weakness and strength are not two ends of the spectrum. It's actually this different kind of strength 
for when I am weak, when I'm down on my luck, when I don't know where God is taking me. Oh, if I invite him into it, he makes me strong through it. And again, some of you might think that that sounds crazy. And others of you who have walked with God through seasons of hardship, through seasons of not knowing the answers, not knowing where God is and what God's doing, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's exactly how my life is. (laughs) And that's so true that for when I am weak, it makes enough space for God to be strong and to fill those gaps. So I'm going to take this idea of true strength is recognizing our need for help. And I'm going to take it a step further and say this. The true strength is recognizing our need for Jesus. It's admitting that we can't do this life on our own, and we invite the sustainer, the Lord, the Savior of the world and the cosmos into our lives to take our weakness and fill it out to make it his strength. And some of you this morning, this is the shift that you need to take. This is the shift that you need to make because you've been trying to white-knuckle your circumstances. You've been trying to hold on to it and control it so long and so deeply that you're stuck. And you're living like in the middle of faith and running your own life, and it's not working for you. And I just want to encourage you, it's not working for you because you weren't created to like have one hand on the wheel and Jesus to have one hand on the wheel. True strength. It's found when you admit your own weakness and you recognize your need for your Savior, for Jesus, and you let him in the driver's seat of your life. I mean, I think of it this way. Uh, if you're a parent, uh, I, I think there's no better feeling on planet Earth than when you have a baby or a toddler or a kid look up at you and just go, arms up. <laughs> like, please pick me up. Please pick me up. Please pick me up. There's no better feeling on planet Earth. I don't care. I've never tried a lot of hard drugs, but it can't be as good as that. It can't be as good as that, right? It's incredible. And when I say I haven't tried a lot of hard drugs, I have not done hard drugs. Let the record show online. Um, <laughs> but there's just no way that there's a high of feeling better than your kid lifting their arms to you to, to have them pick you up. And I just imagine... Oh, how much more so is our Heavenly Father so pleased and so filled with joy, overflowing with joy when we just go, I can't do this. I need you. Pick me up. Carry me. Oh, that's who we find in our Heavenly Father. That's who we find in the person of Jesus. So my friends, true strength is recognizing our need for him. And maybe for you, that's what you need to do this morning is just admit your need for him got some questions. just want to close asking you. We go back to what true strength is and this rebranding of strength, both strength and weakness together. Let me ask you this about your emotions. Do you think that showing emotions is a sign of weakness? Is vulnerability your kryptonite? Is it time that instead of shoving down your emotions, you invite God into your emotions and you invite him to let him use them to bring healing and to bring hope and light and life into your world? Remember, the true strength is different. Next question I'll ask you, how can you descend into greatness this week? How can you descend into greatness, giving up your power for the sake of others? Who will you lift up with your strength this next week, whether it be in your car leaving church today or in your workplace or around the dinner table? Who can you loan your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness? Are you tough enough to live out kindness, not niceness? And here's the last question I want to ask you. Are you strong enough to admit your need for God? Are you strong enough to invite him into your struggle, into your waiting, into your questions, into your doubts, into your hurts, into your pains, into your past? 
Are you tough enough to do that? Or are you white-knuckling everything in your life? My friends, you weren't created to white-knuckle your one and only life. You were created to open-handedly give it to your Father, to your Savior, Jesus. That's what true strength looks like.